Aaron, I just want to say you're welcome for picking a theme song that has like the highest falsetto ever. Good, good work, man. Good work. We're starting a new series today. My name's Ryan Paulson. I'm the lead pastor here, and it's a joy to be with you. If you have a picture in your mind of what a prophet is like, might I suggest to you that the biblical image might ruin your idyllic view? Prophets in the scriptures weren't people that had their own TV show. They weren't people that made a lot of money. They weren't people that flew around and had large followings. They were sort of fringe folks. They were the people that were on the outside of the norm as far as faith went. They were people that took off their clothes and preached naked. It's true. I will spare you that. I'm not a prophet. They were people who cooked their food over a flaming pile of dung. They were people who married a prostitute to make a point. The prophets were on the fringes of faith. They were were sojourners. They were wrestlers. They were people who had to fight from their faith. Far from being stable, they were people who doubted God. If you read through the prophet Isaiah, if you read through Jeremiah, oftentimes you'll get this lament, God, where in the world are you? Sojourners physically and spiritually. And Elijah, who we're starting a series on today, was no different than those other ancient prophets of Yahweh. I mean, his life is full of ups and downs, of hills and valleys. We'll see next week that Elijah sees the dead raised. He sees fire called down from heaven to wipe out the prophets of Baal. And then after that, he runs for his life in fear of Jezebel, this wicked queen. He hides in the desert. He laments that he was ever born. He contemplates taking his own life. He's a prophet who tastes joy and sorrow, immense success and incredible defeat. He is a prophet who has great faith in God and doubts God. He's a prophet of both the hills and the valleys. One of the things I love about Elijah is that he was a lot like us. I can remember the day that my youngest son, Reed, was born. We were sitting in the hospital, had this beautiful, healthy baby boy, and in the door walked my mom and dad. My mom had an undiagnosed brain condition, and she was um, about halfway through a rapid decline, the, uh, uh, an illness that would eventually take her life. And her and my dad walked through the door, she on my dad's arm because she was too weak to stand up. And she sat down on the couch, and we handed her Reed and propped her up a little bit and positioned her to hold Reed. And I can remember sitting on that hospital bed with Kelly, thinking to myself, 
am I supposed to be happy or sad right now? Um, here's a picture from that moment. Am I, am I supposed to be ecstatic that, man, we have this healthy baby boy who's crying, who's screaming, who's pooping, all this stuff, the very few things that babies are supposed to do. He was doing them, right? Or am I supposed to be grieving that I'm not sure how long this picture would actually be able to last? You ever been there? Where you just looked at life and, and it wasn't clear cut. It wasn't like life was good or that life was bad, but that oftentimes life is a mixture of both, isn't it? And can we be just a little bit excited this morning that God doesn't intend to lead us on a journey that isn't human? Okay. Part of the human journey is to wrestle with God. Some things in life are really good and some things in life are really bad and you're in the midst of it all. And I don't know how to tease it all out and I don't know how to make sense of it, but God, I just know that you're on both the mountaintop and in the valley low. I know that you're in the joy and the lament. I know that you're in the faith and in the doubt. God, I know that you're, you're in it all somehow. And I love that we as followers of Jesus get to gather around our heroes of the faith who were not men and women that had it all together. They are men and women who sometimes step out boldly and act boldly and other times run for their lives because they're scared to death. They're people who celebrate on the mountaintop and they're people who grieve in the valley low. Lean in for a moment. The story of the scriptures is not that much different than your life. Because we experience both of those, don't we? And if you have your Bible, I'd invite you open to 1 Kings chapter 17. You might need to use a table of contents. That's okay. It's in the Old Testament. And it's where we get introduced to the prophet Elijah. His life is a roller coaster. Hills and valleys, success and defeat, joy and lament, faith and doubt. And listen to the way his journey begins. It's just like he sneaks out of nowhere for this sneak attack into the scriptures that will be carried on even into the book of Revelation, as we'll see. Now, Elijah, the Tishbite from Tishbe, okay, now just a quick, you can pray for me as I say that a number of times today, the Tishbite from Tishbe, um, all you need to know is that Tishbe was nowhere, um, it's been wiped out. People don't even know where it was really located. Elijah comes from a nowhere town. Some people would even argue it's not even really a town. It just means sojourner. It means wanderer. Either way, what the scriptures want you to know is that Elijah is a nobody. And he bursts onto the scene to talk to somebody. Elijah, the Tishbite from Tishbe in Galilee, said to Ahab, as the Lord, the God of Israel lives, whom I serve, and some translations will say, whom I stand before, there will be neither dew nor rain in the next few years except for my word. Now, a little bit of background is necessary. David was one of the great kings, arguably the greatest king every Israel ever had. And after him, we had king whom? Who followed him? Solomon, right? And after Solomon, there was a split between the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. And the northern kingdom had a line of notoriously really, really terrible kings. 
They were evil. And Ahab, who Elijah comes and bursts onto the scene of the scriptures and stands before, is the most evil up until this point. If you have your own Bible open, look at verse 30 of chapter 16. Ahab, son of Omri, did more evil in the eyes of the Lord than any of those before him. It's not exactly something that you want on your resume. But Elijah bursts into his chamber, bursts into his palace, and he has an announcement. I'm not sure if he rehearsed it and sort of thought through it. There will be, like, he's like, what do I emphasize? There will be no rain, or there will be no rain, or there will be no rain for three years. I don't know. But somehow, with his knees shaking, stands before one of the most powerful men in the world at the time. And says, the rain, it's done until I say it rains. Now, one of the things you need to know about Ahab is that he'd started to worship the god Baal. And Baal was the god of the, any guesses? Rain. Nailed it. So Elijah steps in to the chamber of the king and not only declares there's going to be a drought, you're in pretty big trouble until I say you're not in trouble, but this is a war of the gods. Yahweh versus Baal. Who's going to win out? Who's the most powerful deity in the world? Is it Yahweh's, or Elijah's God, Yahweh, or is it the God Well, we'll see how that story plays out in a few weeks. You don't want to miss that. But he stands there and he tells the most powerful man in the world it's not going to rain. It would be like you going to stand in front of John Elway and telling him, Broncos aren't going to win a game for the next three years. They might not. I'm just saying. They they, they might not. Uh, um, Or, or... It would be like standing in front of Donald Trump and saying, no Republican is going to get elected for the next three years. Now, before you either cheer or jeer, okay, so just, I'm not, I'm not making any political comment, just get that picture in mind, standing before the most powerful person and saying something that there's no way they want to hear. Then the next verses start to make sense when we catch that. Then verse 2 The word of the Lord came to Elijah, leave here, turn eastward, and what? Hide. I love this. Such practical spiritual advice. Um, You're going to want to get out of here. You're in big trouble. (laughs) I don't know if God said like, man, what were you thinking? Like you should not have done that. We're not quite sure if Elijah is reporting what God has said, or if you go and read James chapter 5 where it talks about Elijah, it seems like this is sort of his idea. And God's like, dude, run, (laughs) run. Like I've got plans for you and you're about to be extinguished. Leave here and turn where? Eastward and hide in the Kareth ravine where? East of the Jordan. And if you know anything about biblical narrative and types and archetypes and imagery, you know that east is east of Eden. It's east of God's perfection. It's east of God's design. It's it's the wild. Elijah emerges from obscurity to stand before the king and make a bold announcement, and then immediately he's put back into what? Obscurity. 
And if I'm Elijah, I'm going, hey, God, like, I had a plan. And it was to stand before the king and make this announcement, and then you were going to, like, prop me up. And then I was going to speak on your behalf, and I was going to call the northern kingdom, Israel, back to you. And I think maybe God says, like, yeah, 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 that's a great plan. Run, hide, get into the desert, eastward. Go, to, go back, Elijah, to the middle of nowhere. And if I'm Elijah, I'm thinking to myself, God, we've got business to take care of. Why are we wasting time at the Kareth Ravine? And the truth of the matter is, friends, is that the wilderness often feels like wasted time, but the truth is it's training ground. For us, it feels like, God, where are you? And God, what are you doing? But for God, it's times where he shapes us and molds us and makes us into the kind of people that can walk with him and taste the joy that he has for us. See, the wilderness, this, what we often think of as wasted time, is where we come face to face, our will and God's will. And it's where God's will wins out because our resources are so depleted, our willpower, our gifting, our ingenuity, there's no way those things get us through the wilderness. We have to, in the wilderness, we must face our weaknesses and surrender our illusions and our pretenses. We surrender our way through the wilderness. We don't beat our chest through it. And if you've ever walked through the wilderness, if you walk through those dry seasons, those dry times, you know that that's true. Fundamentally, this wilderness has to do with breaking through the barriers that we have built, sometimes through our own successes, sometimes through the lies that we believe, sometimes through our failures. It's breaking through the things that we have built, barriers that we've built, and rediscovering life, and rediscovering God, and oftentimes rediscovering faith. See, what Elijah might view as wasted time, God views as training ground, and he always has. I mean, think about it. If you read through the scriptures, wilderness is going to be a theme all throughout. Abraham, Abram, called to walk with God, called out of Ur and into where? The wilderness, the desert. He's a wandering man. It's where he learns to actually listen to God. Coming out of a culture of idolatry, he's shaped in the wilderness. The Israelite people, they come out of slavery in Egypt, go through the Red Sea, and spend 40 years wandering around in the desert. But that wandering is not wasted time. You go read Deuteronomy chapter 6 through, through chapter 8, and what you'll see is it's training ground. They are becoming the people of God. Later on in their story, you see Israel led into exile. It's where they learn to hear God's loving voice again and respond to the overtures of divine love that are being showered down on them. Jesus, born, lives 30 years, is baptized in the Jordan River. This sort of this, this archetype of Israel's journey comes out of the water, comes through the water, and is led into the wilderness. He's led into the wilderness by the Spirit of God, being prepared for ministry. The Apostle Paul, 
comes to faith in this ecstatic spiritual experience on the road to Damascus, he's a blinding light. Suddenly, all the sort of coins drop in his spiritual self. He comes to know Jesus and then spends three years in Arabia trying to unpack everything he knows about the Old Testament scriptures and combine it to see Jesus as the ultimate fulfillment of it all. Three years. See, what I often call lack of progress, God calls preparation. And I love, I love, I'm borderline addicted to up and to the right. I love progress. I love seeing progress in our church. I love seeing progress in the businesses that we run. I love seeing progress in my own spirituality. But will you lean in for a second and even look up, to, look up at me? For God, oftentimes, preparation is more important than progress. And there's times, there's times where he will say, hey, it's not wasted time, it's training ground because you're not ready yet. You're not who you need to be in order to step into what I'm inviting you to do. I love the way that this French guy says it. I tried to say it first service and people laughed at me. So he's just French guy, Pierre. Here's how he said it. He said, above all, above all, Trust the, will you say this with me, these few words, slow work of God. We quite naturally are impatient in everything to reach the end without delay. Give our Lord the benefit of believing that his hand is leading you and accept the anxiety of feeling yourself in suspense and incomplete. Oh, that is a word for a chaotic frazzled, disconnected generation, is it not? Trust the slow work of God. In a day and time where you can get a master's degree in three months, trust the slow, intentional work of God. And here's what his work is in one word, your formation. It's who you're becoming I mean, listen to the way that Paul says it in the book of Romans. He says this, and we know that in how many things? All things. We know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him. Now, here's what he doesn't say. He doesn't say everything that comes into your life is good. He says God works good out of everything that comes into your life. For you've been called according to his purpose. For those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed into the image of his son. What is God working all things towards? Conforming you into the image of Jesus. That he, Jesus, might be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. I don't even have time to tackle a portion of that last portion of that verse. We could do a whole series on that. But God's goal in everything is who you are becoming. And the wilderness, the wilderness refuses, will not let you continue with business as usual. The wilderness is disruptive, it's disorienting, and look up at me for a second. That's its power. That's its power. It's disruptive, it's disorienting, and it will not let you just continue as is. I was reading through um, 
some of our prayer requests. And just so you know, when you write a little prayer request on the back of that um, connection card, our elders, um, our staff, we pray through those and we count that a joy to journey with you in that. I was praying through those this week and I just thought, man, there's a lot of people in this space that are walking through the wilderness. And sometimes it looks like a health concern that you just don't have answers to or a diagnosis that you're praying against. For some of you, it looks like relational strife. There's just things that you just can't quite work out. Others of you, it's working through abuse, some things that happened to you in the past and some pain that you're carrying and you're going, God, I don't know what to do with this. There's people in this room that have businesses that are on the fritz and jobs that are inconsistent and you're wondering where that next paycheck's coming from. Those are the wildernesses of life. I mean, these are the places where we go, hey, God, what are you, what are you doing here? I thought we were on a road. <laughs> I thought we were on a trajectory. And then there's some of you, and you're more of, a, you're more of like a spiritual valley where you're going, God, I'm not even sure that you're real. I'm not sure that you're there. And God, I, I, I don't doubt that you're there, but God, I have major questions about why you didn't show up the way that I hoped you'd show up. And you're just asking these questions that are part of being human and part of walking with God. As St. John of the Cross would call it the dark night of the soul. And it's these wildernesses that operate as training ground for us. We may not like them, and they may be really painful, but God is up to something in the midst. He's so creative. He, as Amy Carmichael said, he refuses to waste his kid's pain. So he weaves it, he works it for our formation and ultimately our good. Let me show you how this happens in the life of Elijah. If you have your Bible open, just look with me at verse 3 of chapter 17. I'll start in verse 2 to give some context. The word of the Lord came to Elijah, leave here, turn eastward, and hide in the where? Kareth Ravine, east of the Jordan. So go hide in the Kareth Ravine, and it's a little dot on a map. We have no clue where it is today, but the word Kareth literally means to cut down, to cut down. And it's not so much about where Elijah is going. It is about that, but it's about the journey that Elijah is on. See, in order to be built up, he must first be what? Cut down. In order to be great, he must first be humble. In order to carry the message of God, he must become a man of God. I love the way that A.W. Tozer said it. He said, it's doubtful that God can bless a man greatly until he has hurt him deeply or until he has allowed him to be hurt deeply. See, the truth of the matter is that if dependence is our objective, weakness is an advantage. You may, you may want to write that down. If dependence is the objective, weakness is actually an advantage. Our greatest benefit, the greatest thing we might bring to the people around us and to the kingdom of God might be found in our deepest pain. The things people need from you most not, may, may not be your strengths and everything that you have all together and the things that are on your resume that you'd love to bring to the table. God may look at you and go, that's all great, that's all wonderful, but what I want to use is the darkness and the hurt and the pain. You could say it the flip side 
of that is beware of your strengths because those are places you most likely will overlook God. He's going to the Cherith Ravine. Things are getting cut down in the wilderness in the life of this prophet Elijah. And we're going to see two things in his life, two things that shape our lives and walk with God as well, but two things God uniquely does in the wilderness. One is he brings us to this place where our hands are finally open and we go, all right, God, have your way. When I was a backpack guide for four years in college, I spent a lot of time in the wilderness in Colorado, and so I have a great affinity for the outdoors. And I've seen God move and work in the lives of people in ways that I never imagined through the wilderness, through silence and just listening. But as guides, we, as, during guide training, we had tricks that we'd play on each other. And one of those is that anytime we came to a stopping point, we would sneak and hide rocks in each other's packs. And so before you left, you would sort of search your pack just to make sure that there weren't any rocks in it. But every once in a while, you'd see somebody who's just sort of limping along, and you'd know that there were a few rocks in the bottom of your, their pack that they had, we had packaged there so that they couldn't see them. And we, would just, we sat back and just absolutely loved it. Okay. If you're looking at me thinking you're evil, um, no, I'm just fun. <laughs> and we love getting to the end of the trail, the end of the week, and having people unpack their bags and being like, what are these rocks in our bag? And standing back and laughing at them. And I wouldn't do that now because I'm older and I don't work quite as well as I used to. But back then, it was really fun. But I think a lot of us, I think a lot of us, we have some things that we carry that weigh us down. And maybe this morning God says, man, I'm, I'm, I'd love to cut some things down in your life. I'd love to invite you to release some things that you're carrying that aren't for your good and that aren't my design for you. The main thing that's cut down in the life of Elijah, control. He's told by God, you go here. And you do these things. And in order to follow God, he's got to relinquish his control. And we love control, don't we? I saw it last night at dinner, a Friday night at dinner with my family. We have three kids, and so there's um, always a tiebreaker with where we go to dinner, okay? And my youngest son, Reed, had voted for Qdoba. My daughter, Avery, had voted for Smashburger. And my oldest son, Ethan, was the tiebreaker, and he voted for Qdoba. The boys banded together and did it for me. Thank you, Jesus. But, but my daughter was, like, devastated. And she's probably the sweetest person that's ever walked the face of the earth. And she was not having it. We were sitting in Qdoba, walked through the line, and we're like, Avery, what do you want for dinner? And she's like, I don't want anything. <laughs> we're like, you're not going to eat anything? Uh-uh. I'm not hungry anymore. And she sat there at dinner and ate a few chips off of Kelly's plate, but she ate next to nothing. And there was something, I just got to be honest, there was something inside of me that I'm going, yes! a strong-willed girl. I love it. Now, remind me of this, please, when she's a teenager, okay? <laughs> Let's just pull this clip, and we can replay it. And, but there was something in me that went, yeah, you go. You boycott. But she's like, man, I want to hold on to what? Control. I want to decide where we go. 
And we don't get to choose the wilderness, and we can't analyze or rationalize the wilderness away. We can't outwit it. We can't outlast it. We can't outplay it. Going through the wilderness requires a major softening inside of us. It requires surrendering our intellectual arrogance and accepting the ambiguity with humility. We don't get to control it. We don't get to control how it comes. We don't get to control how it goes. We don't get to control what we produce when we're in it. And we don't get to force our way through it. It breaks down every semblance of control we long to have and are often under the illusion that we do. The wilderness doesn't make us small. It reminds us that we are. And so what does Elijah do? Look at verses 4 and 5. God says to him, you will drink from the brook that I've directed and the ravens to supply you with food there. So he did what the Lord had told him. How do we release control in the wilderness? Well, we, we follow that voice of God. We're obedient in the wilderness. The wilderness is not a time where we get to check out and say, God, you didn't come through for me the way that I want you to, so I'm out too. It's our time to say, God, what you ask of me, I will do. It goes on. He went to Kareth Ravine, to the place of cutting down east of the Jordan. That's the third time it's said east, right? The narrator might want us to know where this is, right? It's east of the Jordan, east of Eden. It's in the wilderness. It's in the wild. And he stayed there, or he lived there. So how do we release control in the wilderness? Well, we're obedient, one. But we also embrace this space of silence, solitude. What happens in the wilderness? Nothing. That's the point. And that's the power. In a world where our noise level is consistently elevating, how do we reclaim pieces of our soul that get rotten? See, because it's so easy to just continue to respond the way that we always did with the old patterns that are sunk into our bodies. When somebody wrongs me, this is what I do. When my kids tick me off, I respond in anger. When I don't get my way, I become bitter. And we can go on and on and on like that for years. But silence and solitude is the great teacher that gets beneath just our biological responses to our soul where God can do some work in us and heal what's broken. I love the way that A.J. Sherrill, who was with us a few months ago, said it. He said this, stillness is the forgotten teacher within a society of perpetual movement. That creating space to hear God is one of the most powerful things that we can do and one of the things we do least. And if you've ever tried to be quiet and just listen to God, you know how difficult that is. You start to realize really quickly how tied up your insides are. If you just try to be quiet for a few minutes every morning, what you'll start to realize is the narrative that goes on in the back of your head is running all the time. Anybody with me? Have you seen this? Which is why, this is just a side note, which is why when you want to be silent and still before God for a while, what you should probably do is just have a notepad there so that when thoughts come to your mind, you can write them down and get them out of your mind and on the paper and get back to being with God, okay? But 
One of the things that starts to happen, so silence and solitude brings a freedom because we start to be able to actually identify those faulty narratives that are running constantly in the back of our mind and controlling us even though we don't know it. So when we're silent, we can say, God, listen, I've got this thought in my head that I'm just not good enough. God, I'm starting to identify that what goes on in the back of my mind when I'm still and silent, the thought that spins up is guilt and shame. Silence is powerful because we get to identify what's always there, but we rarely notice. It allows us to see the fact, if you try to be quiet and try to be silent, what you'll start to realize is for anything like me is that you're pretty hurried and pretty worried. And it's God saying, hey, will you let that go? I, 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 can, I can handle that. Will you let it go? It's the power of the wilderness. So one of my questions for you today is, what is Jesus inviting you to release, to relinquish? Worry? Expectation? Shame? Bitterness? anger? What are those rocks in your backpack that are weighing you down and not doing you any good? The wilderness is not wasted time. It's training ground. And Elijah, in being silent, in being obedient, starts to be cut down in the most beautiful of ways. Here's how the story continues in verse 6. The ravens brought him bread and meat in the morning and bread and meat in the evening, and he drank from the brook. How many of you would like to have just seen, like, footage of this? I, I'm, like, you wonder if, like, Elijah's putting in orders? Um, could we do carne asada for dinner if we're doing meat? Like, and bread, could we do a tortilla or just pan? Like, could we do that? Is that... I don't know how it played out. I just know that once Elijah is cut down and in the wilderness and his hands are open to relinquish things that he's been carrying, they're also ironically open to receive what God is delivering. And these go hand in hand. God's training ground in the wilderness of our lives is both the things we give up and it's the things that we receive. I'm reminded in reading through the Gospels that one of the strangest passages for me is that Jesus isn't welcomed in his own hometown of Nazareth. Have you read that passage? Where his own people didn't want anything to do with him because they, they knew about his life, they knew about his upbringing. Oh, this is Mary and Joseph's son, and he's got all these brothers, and he's not welcomed in his own town. And here's what it says about his ministry in his own town of Nazareth. He did not do many miracles there because of their, what? Lack of faith. Like, they just weren't open. It wasn't that God didn't want to deliver and wasn't that God wasn't delivering. They just weren't able to receive. I thought about that as I was watching the Broncos play last Monday night. (laughs) And I saw Case Keenum drop back in the pocket. 23 seconds left in the game. Broncos down by four, needing a touchdown in order to win. And he had a receiver open right along the sidelines to win the game. And $18 million bought us a little bit of a too high pass that lost the game. I know one play doesn't lose the game, but this one did, okay? Um, Here's the deal. 
Let's just watch it. Let's just sink in it. It hurts. It hurts. I know. Okay, look, look, look up at me for a second. God never misses. God never misses. But we often have our hands way too full to receive what he wants to bring. And what the wilderness does is it sometimes pries our fingers off of things that we love and hold dear so that it can deliver something better. It's the same reason that Jesus asked this man sitting, this paralytic man sitting, John chapter 5, verse 6. He asked him this weird question, do you want to get well? <laughs> because he knows that whether or not he receives is about whether, not, not that God isn't delivering, but whether or not this man actually wants what Jesus is pouring out. I love it. These ravens come and they deliver bread and meat, a well-balanced diet, out of absolutely nowhere. And if you're anything like me, I often measure God's provision based on my circumstances. Hey, God, here's what you might bring because here's what I have available to me. And what God says is, that's cute, that's funny, but I, have, I own the cattle on a thousand hills, and I can bring something out of nothing. Your circumstances are not a measure of my provision. I can do whatever I want. And it often feels a little bit mysterious, but aren't the things that our soul longs for mysterious anyway? The things that actually feed our soul are things we can't see, can't touch, can't... They're the only things that we know intuitively. And so sometimes the bread and meat delivered by the raven is somebody who puts their arm around you and says, I'm here for you. Sometimes it's a note that you get in the mail. Sometimes it's food that's delivered at your door. Sometimes it's a song that we sing during worship where we remember the truth about who God is and it's like ravens bringing meat, isn't it? Is this just me or is it, does this, yeah. That God's provision is often mysterious, but I'm so full that I can't receive it sometimes. And what Elijah learns is that the life of faith and the life of trust is something that's built in the crock pot, not in the microwave. Okay? So he goes and it says he lives in the wilderness. He doesn't just go there for a brief time. He sees God's provision day after day after day after day after day after day and eventually goes, huh, there's a theme here. God, you, you can be trusted. And he receives provision in the wilderness, and he develops trust in the wilderness, and he's able, I think, it doesn't say this in there, but as you see God's hand day after day after day after day, at some point you must go, this God's for me. I think he's for me. And so he receives provision, he develops trust, and he embraces love. He embraces love. I love the way that the great author Henry Nouwen put it. Here's what he said. The challenge, and this is a challenge we all face, is to let go of fear and claim the deeper truth of who I am. When you forget your true identity as a beloved child of God, you lose your way in life. You become scared and start doing things not freely, but because of fear. But when you make space for God in your life and begin to listen to God's loving voice, you suddenly start to realize his perfect love. And here's the things, friends. 
Elijah comes to this place where he's still unsure of all that God's doing. He's unsure of why he's in the wilderness and why he's being cut down. He doesn't have answers to everything. He just knows two things. One, God loves me, and two, God's trustworthy. And that's it. And in a time where we want to, like Job's friends, explain away everything that happens in life, and you'll have people that say, sort of, I call it spiritual garbage, things that aren't true but sound good. Everything happens for a reason, and here's exactly what God's doing, and all these things. I, I think there's two things we can be sure of in the wilderness. One, God loves me. Two, God's trustworthy. And I don't know about anything else sometimes. But those are enough. Those two things are enough. I love the way that Paul puts it in the book of Romans. Here's what he says. Not only so, but we glory in our sufferings. Or read it, wildernesses. We glory in our wildernesses because we know that wilderness produces perseverance and perseverance character and character hope. And hope doesn't put us to shame because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit that he has given us. For some of you, that's why you're here today. I'm convinced of it. That's why you're here today, because you're walking through the valley of the shadow of death, and your question is why, and God's answer is who is with you. Will you receive it? It's interesting. This section ends, verse 7, and we'll land the plane here. Sometime later, the brook dried up because there had been no rain in the land. What did you imagine? Like, if I'm Elijah, I'm like shaking my fist at God. You brought me out here. You provided. And now the brook is dry. You've answered my prayer for a drought. <laughs> and the word of the Lord came to him. What? Go. See, the dried brook is not a lack of God's provision. It's an insertion of God's direction. The brook's dry. The season is over. Dried brooks don't nullify God's provision. They providentially move us to the next season. Elijah could get frustrated that he can't recognize what God's doing, but instead he just listens to God's voice and he decides to go. Sometimes season of pain and season of lament, they start to get comfortable. Even though we hate them, we know them. But oftentimes that brook dries up. And it's not because God's bad, and it's not because God's evil, it's because he's moving you to that next season. Same thing he did with Elijah. Same thing he did with Elijah. Friends, the wilderness is not about wasted time. It's training ground, where we learn how to relinquish some things, get rid of them, release them to God, and we learn how to receive. Maybe there's one thing that you need to receive from God today. Is it his love? Is it his goodness? Is it content? Is it hope? Is it a dream that seems to have died? I'm convinced, I'm convinced that we become a sum total of what we both relinquish and receive. And it's God's formation of us. Yesterday, um, I saw in my newsfeed this story that just caught my eye. It was a story about an artist. His name is Bansky. He's um, a graffiti artist, but he had a piece of art that was on sale in a gallery. And it sold for 1.4 million pounds, which I believe is roughly $3,000, give or take. 
And as people were there and this um, auction had just finished, Bansky, I believe, was also there, had somebody there and pushed a button. And the piece that had just been bid on went through a shredder. And if you know anything about Bansky, he's a little bit eccentric, to say the least. But everybody there is going, oh my goodness, this piece of art that's not priceless, but it's worth 1.4 million pounds is absolutely destroyed now. What are we going to do? Right? And, and here's the ironic part. Here's what, I don't know this for sure, but I would bet my life on it. That Bansky piece is worth more today than it was yesterday. Because there's a story. And we often want to keep things perfect, but that's not what makes for a good story. There's a little bit of pain. There's a little bit of shredding. There's a little bit of uncertainty. There's a little bit of regret. And that's what makes it better. And it's exactly what the wilderness does to us. It strips us down, opens us up, and then rebuilds it. See, Elijah starts out as a Tishbite from Tishbe. And after his time in the wilderness, he ends, verse 24, a man of God. God did something in his heart and life as he entered into the barren wilderness. And he does something in your life too when you go there as well. I wanted to end by giving you some sort of tool because I know that there's a number of you that are in the wilderness. If you're following along in your bulletin outline, there's an ancient prayer practice that's on the back It's called the Prayer of Examine. It was developed by St. Ignatius of Loyola. And it's basically a way to sort of prayerfully walk through your day and ask God to speak to you. I have this on the back so that you can use it, especially if you're in the wilderness. But this prayer often creates a, a surrogate wilderness where we walk through life just thinking everything's great and everything's fine until we pause and then all these things inside of us rise up. This prayer is a way to cause those things to rise up a little bit so that we can deal with them and grow. So what I'd like to do is I just want to spend the next five minutes, okay? I want you to get comfortable before you go running out of here, okay? I just, I want you to get comfortable and we're just going to pray this prayer together. There's four phases and I'll just, I'll lead you to it, but you can close your eyes and if you want, you can open your hands or you can sort of have them down to say, God, I'm releasing this to you, whatever feels natural to you. The prayer of examine starts just with an awareness that God is present. So we don't go to find God. God is here. If you're a follower of Jesus, the spirit of God lives in you. That's what the scriptures say. And our expectation if God lives in us is that he might have something he wants to say. So just take a moment and recognize that God is here. Bring to mind one thing, just one, that you're grateful for. What's one way God's been really good to you? Even if you're in the the valley, my guess is there's one.
want you to think back over your last few days and maybe this last week. What are two or three things that sort of immediately come to mind? Two or three events, maybe conversations, things you had the, got to experience. What are a few things that come to mind? Maybe ask Jesus why those things popped up. What is it about those things? Within those things, is there an invitation maybe to release some anger, some confusion, some disappointment, some bitterness, some cynicism? Is there, is there a chance to relinquish something and maybe or maybe is there a chance to receive he's got it work in some way that maybe you missed first time around but he brought it back this time to say don't miss it don't miss it And then would you ask Jesus what, what he might be inviting you to do with that? With that receiving, with that relinquishing, what's his invitation to you? Lord, we know that, that some people walk through the, the desert, they walk through the valley of the shadow of death, death the wilderness, and, and they come out the other side bitter, and then other people come out the other side better. And Lord, we, we want to both relinquish and receive whatever it is that you want to put into our hands or take out. We just want to say to you today, God, we're, we're, we want to be with you. We want to hear your voice. We want to live in your way. We want to live with your heart, and we know that nothing in our life is wasted. So for my friends in that valley today, I, I just pray over them, Jesus, would you meet them in that space? Would they hear your voice afresh and your invitation over them? And God, for all of us, would you invite us to deeper places where we really deal with the things going on deeply in our soul, both the things we celebrate and the things we lament, may we bring them all before you knowing that you see it all anyway. In the time we think's wasted, God, would you build something beautiful, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.